Okay, the cold weather must have uh, chased a few people away today, so we'll, uh, we'll go ahead and get started. Uh, Professor Payer is not going to make it. He's traveling again this week, so he's not going to be able to be in class today. But it's my pleasure to introduce Mitch Parker, and Mitch is the Executive Director for Information uh, Security and Compliance at IU Health in Indianapolis. So he's currently working on redeveloping information security program at IU Health and regularly works in uh, lots of non-technology and technology areas. So he's been uh, a speaker at a lot of conferences and a lot of, uh, a lot of workshops. If you're familiar with HIMSS, he's, he's big in the HIMSS organization and, and has been a speaker there. And he's been uh, also a proponent of the Internet of Medical Things. So I think you'll enjoy his talk today. He uh, holds a bachelor's degree in computer science from Bloomsburg and an MS in information technology from LaSalle and his MBA from Temple. So he's uh, well-traveled. And so I'll, without any further ado, I'll introduce Mitch. Thank you very much. And yes, well-traveled up and down Broad Street in Philadelphia, as I like to put it, because LaSalle and Temple are a couple, only a couple miles from each other. So what I'm going to talk about today is lessons learned from the retrocomputing community. And the purpose of what I'm doing today is to show that successful retrocomputing projects and groups which currently exist, they follow patterns that we can use to help a lot of low resource and industrial organizations that really need to secure their devices. So I am from the Philadelphia area. A little bit of background on that is that in the Philadelphia area, probably the most famous computer flameout of the early 90s was a company called Commodore Computers, based in Westchester, Pennsylvania. And famous for at one time being a multi-billion dollar company and getting sold off for parts in 1994. So who am I? As Jerry talked about, I'm the Executive Director of Information Security and Compliance at IU Health. I have been a CISO for over nine years, both at IU Health and at Temple University Health System. I've got over 30 years using computers despite my youth. I started out with a Commodore 64 back in 1984. I still have one of them set up, obviously not the original one, which has probably in some landfill somewhere. I also have my Tandy 102, my Tandy 200, and my Tandy WP2, which I actually occasionally take out and use. And I taught myself computers by taking my old computers apart and putting them back together again. And I went through a lot of Commodore, TRS-80, Tandy, and PC clone hardware that way. I mean, a lot. Since I got married and had kids, a lot of that hardware has been given away. So what is retrocomputing for those of you who don't know? It's the use of a lot of older classic computer and hardware, hardware and software now. And the vast majority of platforms this covers are from the 1980s and 90s, and the most represented platforms you're gonna have out there. And again, this is in no particular order or preference for those of you in the room that may have one. I have no, I, I have no interest in reenacting the BBS flame wars of the 80s. So yeah, you have the Apple II family, which includes the Apple II, the II Plus, IIe, IIc, and 2GS, and I can tell you, I've met Waz, incredibly, incredibly nice guy. And we'll tell you everything about the Apple II to this day. You have the Commodore 64-128, you have the Commodore Amiga and its descendants and clones, the Atari home computers and the ST, sorry for you ST fanatics for leaving out the TT when I wrote this deck. You have the Sinclair Spectrum and its clones, and I put this as specific significance because this computer was so easy to build that a large number of them were actually rebuilt in the Soviet bloc by, former Soviet, by the former Soviet bloc countries themselves. So literally, there's one case where people actually rebuilt the Spectrum using literally household parts and things they cobbled together out of scrap metal in Romania back in the 80s, which is pretty incredible. And of course, you've got to mention the Tandy TRS-80 portables and desktops, and of course, the Tandy Model 100 series 
which was the first real computer you would call a laptop, and part of that was written by a Microsoft engineer named Bill Gates. And of course, you got to mention the TI-994A series first 16-bit home computer. So why? These computers are very simple and very easy to use and fix. The Sinclair Spectrum I mentioned before used a processor called the Z80 from a company called Zilog, which at one time was part of Exxon. And there are so many of these processors on the market that to this day you can still find that part all over the place. And they're significantly less complex than modern computers. I sometimes call it deceptively complex, but you can really get to know the platform really well. And many com community members in the IT community grew up with them. And entire communities have sprung up around this. So I will bring up the first and most popular one, IRC, Internet Relay Chat. And also back in the 80s, before there was IRC and the internet was popular and, well, not in universities, you had CompuServe, you had a little company in Virginia called Quantum Link that grew to become America Online, you had PC Pursuit, and you had a bunch of other 80s online services, many of which charged a lot of money. And of course, the most infamous one for hackers, the VersaDial, aka D-Dial. Uh, 300 baud, you could take seven AppleCat modems, drop them in an Apple II, and boom, instant chat line. Back when your average computer had about 64K of RAM, this was ridiculously popular. And you had often had several of them in the same city. There were two I was aware of in Chicago, two in Philadelphia, and at least one in New York City. And I would say out of the hacker community, this is probably the most famous slash infamous take your pick online social community. And a lot of them were quote unquote linked nationally. Back before long distance was free, long distance cost a lot of money. And so there used to be services called outdials you used to be able to use to link services together in different cities. So people link their D-dials from places like Canada, Chicago, New York, all over the place to talk. And yes, it's still emulated and running to this day. I'm, on a, I'm a member of a Facebook page for D-dial and still haven't logged into that one D-dial system in Florida, but it's there. So what's my community experience? This is not an excuse for all the hours I spent on IRC or D-Dial. I learned computers and security in the early 1990s, pre-internet being popular. Heck, I will tell you that back when 900 numbers were popular, the local internet service provider actually offered a 900 number as an option. You called it once a month and it paid your bill. And I learned pre-internet at the end of the BBS era during the transition to the internet. I learned a lot from working and participating a lot with friends and acquaintances as they worked and Towards the end, I started writing documentation, testing and connecting others with resources they needed, and sharing hardware with those who developed. I remember one day driving 40 miles into South Jersey to pick up a Commodore 128D for a friend in Scranton, Pennsylvania that needed one, because I was going to be up there later that day. Why? Because it was 60 bucks and the guy wouldn't ship. So what makes this community unique? They've worked their way through innumerable challenges to keep hardware and software running far beyond its useful expected lifetime. And they've managed to do so despite some of the most onerous right holders withholding information or not even knowing where it really is. So I'm going to give one very important case in point. When Commodore went under in 1994 and was pretty much sold off for parts, a number of companies bought said parts. And what happened is there was a lot of legal fights over the rights to some of that Commodore intellectual property. 
some of which got so intense that I could name at least one executive of a company that had a lot of ex-Commodore employees that when he does case studies for his class at Temple University, will not even mention the Commodore name out of fear of some sort of legal repercussion. And also, they've done so without major corporations funding them. So there's an interesting case, and I actually sent this deck to be reviewed by Trevor Dickinson. This man in particular, multimillionaire entrepreneur, happens to like Commodore's and Amigas a lot, so there was no new Amigas being made, so he funded a couple of them. So, and literally, he spent several million dollars of his own money, paid an engineering company to make him an Amiga. And he sold, him, and he sold several thousand of money internets. So he's done an incredible job. Needed an operating system, paid developers to write the operating system. Very rare exception. Matter of fact, he's the only one I could find. Everything's almost completely bootstrapped and self-funded. And it's pretty incredible. So what makes it unique? This is the do-it-yourself punk rock hacker ethos community. So these are the original hackers from back in the day. And many of these community members, they're still active in corporate IT, although you'd never know it unless you really ask them. And they do it for themselves. There's no corporate interests in there. Remember, this is do-it-yourself. And they actually kind of shun corporate interests. And a big part of the reason why is some corporations and rights holders have been very hostile to the retro computing community. And I'll be honest about something for those of you from said large corporations viewing this video right now. You don't know who these people are that are asking you about this information from some of your 20 plus year old IP. Some of them now are decision makers and executives at large companies. And when you blow them off or give them current answers, it will negatively reflect on your business. And I'm not saying that to be bad, I'm saying that because bad customer service leads to some issues. Like I said, you don't know what these people do for their day jobs. I can name several very highly placed IT executives that are active in the retro computing community, including one that holds several patents for things we use every day. So why am I doing this? Realistic reason? Because many of the solutions out there and implementations are people are taking cybersecurity implementations that are point solutions and saying they address and assess risk. This is a big problem, and as a CISO, I see that as being a big issue because you can't buy something out of a catalog or something from a company that's gonna magically fix all your problems. It's just never gonna happen that way. And you can't assess and address this risk if you don't know what it really is or what it means. And you don't know what it means unless you understand the whole system. And these people really understand systems and they understand them well. And this community does a better job of understanding systems and assessing risk than any community I know We've forgotten a lot, and we will forget more than most people have ever learned, and we can learn a lot from them and apply it to modern technologies. So, case in point, I'm gonna talk about industrial devices and industrial device security. There's a number of companies out there that have products such as industrial robots, medical devices, SCADA systems, standing for supervisory control acquisition, data acquisition, or control systems with a 20 to 30 year life cycle. Realistically, that's what they plan and budget for. And in many cases, this equipment was already built on obsolete har hardware and software. So I'll give a real life example of this. 22 years ago, I worked as an intern in a company doing PLC development and ladder logic. We were putting 486s in the industrial robots in 1996. At 1996, the processor to use was the Pentium or Pentium Pro. 
So we were already a couple generations behind. Why? Because it was the only equipment back then you could rack mounts. And you can't expect this equipment to be upgraded like a PC on Patch Tuesday. Oh, and I forgot to mention that this hardware ran Windows 3.1 on top of MS-DOS 6.2. So it was very obsolete already. And with the emphasis now on quantitative management, which I got a big exposure to when I got my MBA, there's often expectations of every device out there send performance data for analysis, including the devices that were never meant to do so, i.e. the PC from 1996 running a, running a robot out there somewhere. And in addition, another business trend, there's been an emphasis on centralizing management and operations of companies into what they call centers of excellence. Rough translation, there's been a lot of mergers and acquisitions over the past 20 years. Perfect example of that is General Electric. Another example I can give is IBM. And the real translation for those of us in the room that work with technology is they want to run the actual production sites as lean as possible with as few people as possible to reduce the number of people actually there and reduce costs using centralized monitoring, which means they want to network everything. Coupled with that, the number of people in the workforce who built or maintain these systems is slowly dwindling due to retirement or attrition. Outside of the bump we got from Y2K, when pretty much if you knew COBOL, you were worth six figures, we're seeing a lot of retirements, coupled with the fact that, especially in the case of the U.S. government, a very large amount of the workforce in the U.S. government that was under the old civil service retirement system were given payouts to leave because of the old defined pension benefit the government had. IBM's doing really well. Why? Because they run their own schools to train people on this stuff. Very few companies out there actually run their own schools to train people. And I can name two. IBM and a security company outside of Detroit, Michigan. And, that, and a lot of this industrial equipment is being networked. And in many cases, the original information used to build the system, it's gone. Why is this a major risk? I'll give you three. WannaCry, Petya, and not Petya. There are hosts of other active threats out there, such as Mirai, and the various huge amounts of worms out there attacking your ARM-based devices or x86-based devices every day. And a major propagation factor of vulnerabilities is when you don't address or assess risk or vulnerabilities correctly. When I talk to executives about what the major cause of data breaches is, I tell them it's because systems aren't maintained. First time I ever had to give a presentation to the C-suite at my current organization, I was doing prep with one of the executives before, and she sent me two data breaches I didn't cover in my prep deck. Both of them I had covered in five minutes after doing research because I literally took a look and said, they didn't patch, they didn't patch. Got up in front of 30 executives and basically said, you've got to patch and maintain your systems, and you'll take care of 90% of your problems if you do this. And after a few months, I got them to believe me and buy into that. But again, that's what it comes down to. When you sit there and tell them, you give them these huge data breaches such as OPM, what, 25 million records breached? And the reason why? It wasn't because you didn't have, someone wasn't running the latest and greatest, latest and greatest security software. They were running a three-year-old version of Oracle Forms that had not received security updates and was not going to receive security updates. And this is not Oracle's fault. Oracle told the government, this is old and obsolete software. You need to replace it. Which is why the old OPM administrator is now looking for a job. 
So another piece when I did my research for this is that you literally will have these devices show up on networks and they're available to entire corporations, not to a branch office, not to a defined segment. You'll literally find somebody who figured out how to do a serial Ethernet adapter and the next thing you know, you've got an industrial robot showing up on your corporate network. And when these devices were being designed, they were just figuring out how networking and these technologies worked. So even securing them is a major challenge. And this sounds similar to the challenges the retrocomputing community faces. So we're going to go over the following changes, the following challenges they've addressed. Collaboration and communication, focused social communities, lost, poor, or incomplete documentation, reverse engineering of hardware and software, and again, working around bugs years after the fact, building new, building new tools, addressing tasks at hand, emphasis on preserving the experience, and putting solutions in place to preserve security. So then we're going to go over how we can apply these lessons to to our businesses so we can better protect ourselves. So there's any any group that leverages collaboration and communication, it's the retro computing community. There are mailing lists, IRC channels, BBSs, over Telnet though. I don't think anyone I know is doing dial-up BBSs anymore. If they are, I'm, I'd be surprised. And bulletin boards that they use for communication. There's always someone at the other end, always willing to answer questions or research. And there's no real hierarchy. It's a meritocracy built on delivering information or products. And there's an informal expectation that you will contribute or help out in some way, shape, or form. There's also a very strong conference community with this group that has an emphasis on presenting these findings or new developments. So biggest one I'm going to give is Vintage Computer Festival, which hosts events on the East Coast, Midwest, West Coast, and... I believe they have, they have them in San Francisco and Seattle now. I'll have to check with Evan Koblenz on that, who does a lot of work for them. But again, this is great. I'll tell you, one of the best retrocomputing enthusiasts I know is actually goes to all these events. He's based out of Chicago. You have Hackers on Planet Earth, which every year in New York City, it's at, I think at the Hotel Pennsylvania, it's run by 2600 Magazine, and they do a lot of work. They actually have a retro computing table set up by the Vintage Computer Federation. You will see a lot of them at DEF CON and Black Hat. Many of them go here. I can tell you I had a conversation when I first got to Indiana with somebody about someone they knew from DEF CON 20 years ago. There's the Commodore and Amiga conventions, which, yes, they still exist. The Apple and Atari ST conventions. I believe there's an Apple convention in St. Louis that gets several hundred people a year and the local user groups. And yes, there is one here in Indiana. I think they meet about a half hour north of my house and I'm down in Carmel. And the summary is people want to share information freely in this community and they're gonna do so. So one other critical aspect you can't overlook is focus. So these days, social media is marked by mayhem and trolling and quite frankly, just general chaos as the ev as the events of Twitter today show us. But these communities, they are very focused on addressing tasks at hand. While the 2016 presidential election was, quite frankly, incredibly divisive on social media, you'd never know it from these groups. So groups like Club 100, which Tandy Laptop's website and mailing list, the Commodore 64 and 128 group on Facebook, and the IRC channels are very intolerant of political discussion or trolling. And they will not hesitate to boot you if you, bring, if you try and bring up those conversations. And this is why Usenet was so bad. Constant trolling. 
that's kind of what killed Usenet. And they're very focused. I mean, you have a mix of ages, backgrounds, geographies, and ethnicities who participate in these forums, especially the Commodore ones where most of the people are actually from Western and Eastern Europe. But again, you'd never know about the political issues in Europe if you were on the IRC. And you also have a very large disproportionate number of US Armed Services veterans. Because reason why? Very simple. Many of the people who learned computing back in the 80s and the 70s, they, they got their start in the Army. Because back when computers cost as much as a new car, you wanted access to one? If you enlisted, you had access. Very simple. But the truth is, they leave it at the door and when addressing issues and challenges. And there are many lessons to be learned here from this. And I'm going to actually suffix this with, especially for the information security community. If they all can have the viewpoints they do, right wing, left wing, or whatever, they can still work together no matter any of their differences, and they still get work done. And I can tell you from personal experience, you get both ends of the spectrum, and I've never had an issue. And when people have brought them up, they've been asked to leave. So you get brings us to lost, poor, and incomplete documentation. This is the biggest challenge a lot of people face because many of these systems lack any kind of proper documentation. And if they did have it, it's most likely gone by now, except for the great work Google did in pretty much preserving Usenet from the 70s and 80s and putting it available online as part of Google News. Quite frankly, if Google hadn't done that, a huge amount of history for the Commodore computers would have gone by the wayside or been permanently lost. So big props to Google on that. So what's left is still on paper or if electronic, still in the original disk or tape formats. So what's happened? Community members post what they need on a website or forum. Other communities will research and give what they have. They'll put it up on a website, they'll put it up on Dropbox, or they'll put it up on a BBS to download. And these people will go to flea markets, ham fests, vintage computer festival, local groups, or hacker conventions to purchase this equipment or documentation, and they'll scan it in, they'll post that they have it. I mean, there's somebody I know, literally he'll pick up old computing magazines, scan them, put them in PDF, post where he's got them, and people download them. And in this particular case, this is very interesting. There was some software in the Amiga community that was thought to be lost. They contacted the original author brought him back into the community and he got a new release of software out of it. Guy's name was Jim Drew, I believe. And they will contact original authors and companies. And sometimes this brings them back into the community. And again, the other way I've seen this a lot has been with Nintendo games. People will contact the original authors of Nintendo games. And what's happened is you've seen a lot of ROMs of what were once thought to be lost games downloadable on the internet. And they will make best efforts to reconstruct what they don't have. And they will often collaborate to piece together info like amateur archaeologists. It's actually pretty cool to watch. And they will fill in the blanks and put together documentation in a standard format. And yes, they will build equipment to read the old formats. I'll give a perfect example. It's still something called Cryoflux. You can get off the, it's a disk drive you can get off the internet. Designed to do low-level disk reads of three and a half five and a quarter and eight inch disks. Yes, they did at one time make eight inch disks. And what this does is because standard disk readers weren't capable of reading past some of the errors, this reads the magnetic flux patterns. 
That's dedication. And what's the end result? Collaborative communities working together to rebuild relevant documentation. And while it's not perfect, it's a start. And in some, I should have put many cases, it's an improvement over the original documentation. Why? Because, you have to, because a lot of people reverse engineer it. And when documentation isn't enough, you have to know how it really works. And you're dealing with situations where 99% of the time, except for the rare cases I talked about before, you're not going to have access to source code or to developers. Therefore, these people will reverse engineer and document using emulators and virtualized environments to determine exactly how systems work. This means they will take the extra time to disassemble code in libraries and determine exactly what lines of code executed where. Sound like malware research? Perfect example I can give of this, of determining how something works under very specific corner cases, was a game for a Super Nintendo called Speedy Gonzales, based off of the old Warner Brothers character. So what happened is, is the programmers that built this game were incredibly, ridiculously talented to the point where they were able to get more performance out of four megahertz than they should have. And they used some dirty tricks on the hardware to do it. So someone that wrote one of the Super Nintendo emulators, and I read this in Ars Technica five years ago, literally figured out how the game operated because there was a glitch caused by how this one programmer programmed in Speedy Gonzales in level six. And what he did, he figured out exactly what the glitch was reverse engineered it, published the results in his emulator, and got an article on Ars Technica out of it, which meant that a lot of people out there got to see firsthand what this man did. And it was absolutely brilliant. And this is the kind of dedication, and this is the kind of people you need disassembling malware. Why? Because they know how it works and they can get those corner cases working, and a lot of the malware we're seeing these days uses similar techniques to what the video game programmers used in the 80s. Everything old becomes new again. And some of the more motivated ones will document ships using logic analyzers and other tools, custom built, to determine exactly how that hardware operates. And they will document what they have and share it. Part of the reason why a lot of this hardware is dying. Uh, the, there's only a finite number of Commodore 64s or Commodore Amigas that were made. Unfortunately, both of those computers used a lot of custom ships because Commodore had their own chip foundry, they were able to do this. And what happened is they didn't exactly put out good documentation of those chips. Unlike the Waz who documented everything he could about the Apple II and made sure everyone had it. And I'm sure if it wasn't out there on the internet, he'd pay for it to be out there these days. <laughs> these people are going out there reverse engineering what these chips did so they can make sure the emulators can emulate them because the hardware is dying, which means software can't run anymore. You have to be able to do it. It's very important. And also, it gives you additional knowledge of how the systems work and where the risks really are. Or in the case of some of the more brilliant video game programmers, how to make a, how to make a Super Nintendo output real-time video. And as part of your documentation or reverse engineering process, you will find often very hard to reproduce bugs. And they will find something that took years to discover. However, there's several, cha there's several challenges here. Much like Speedy Gonzales, what I talked about earlier on the Super Nintendo, people probably knew about this bug and used it to their advantage. Or as I like to refer to it as, many of the demo coders who programmed demos for the Commodore 64 and Amiga, who were infamous for that. And if you try and fix it in hardware or software, you have a chance of breaking existing systems. We see a lot of that today. Microsoft had that problem 
years ago before they put the side-by-side -side libraries in Windows, and which we used to call DLL Hell. And if you fix it, you need to be able to operate in both a broken and fixed state. Emulators do this a lot, as did Windows with its quote-unquote shims, which were really popular before Windows 10. And the most popular solution for when you find these bugs is integrate the solution into an emulator with an option to turn it on or off. So I know WinUAE does that, QEMU, which emulates x86 computers, DOSBox, Vice, or MAME. And if there's a code fix, fix only to programs that need it and offer it as an option or patch. The Amiga community is really good about that. And if there's a broad-based solution, you document the living heck out of it and communicate it to everyone you know. So when you talk about building new tools, most of the original development environments, they show their age or they're unusable on modern computers. Because a lot of development environments use some of the same hooks you use to make demos run. And there's a lot of new technologies to take advantage of. So what a lot of people do is they develop their own tools on newer platforms that can either interface with the emulators or actual devices via the interfaces. Kind of like what people used to do with Palm Pilot development 20 years ago. And it allows you to speed up your development by, actually, by using modern tools, and it allows you to debug issues more thoroughly by, again, using some of the modern tools. You're going to be a lot more productive using some of the GNU debuggers than you were some of the stuff from 30 years ago. And you have to have that emphasis on addressing the tasks at hand. You only got a, fi a finite hour, number of hours in a day you can actually do something. And these are people doing this in their spare time. And they're fo they focus their successful projects around a limited scope that addresses the tasks at hand. And while it take a, might take a while to complete, the development is very usually transparent and open, and in many cases can be downloaded via GitHub. However, they address the, get, they address the key issues. And the focus is on preserving and reproducing the user experience in as original a manner as possible. There's not about making a modern experience because people wouldn't use it. It's not authentic. You have to keep it original. Even if it's emulated, you preserve it. You go out of your way to not change it. And if there's new features, you integrate them in such a way that it integrates with the old environment and more importantly, can be turned off. So I can think of all the modifications for the TRS-80 model 100 and 102. You can turn them all off and return back to your stock hardware whenever you'd like. And if there's new hardware and software features, don't, in, don't make them part of the core user experience. Keep them away. Make it something someone has to turn on because you don't want to ruin that experience. And also, people forget muscle memory and user experience. And if you mess with that, you mess with someone's workflow, you're going to have a pretty major issue, which is a, major, a big reason why a lot of software projects fail, a lot of upgrades fail, is because you're changing someone's workflow so drastically, they don't know what to do. And remember, you're dealing with poor documentation most of the time. So you have to preserve that experience. And if there's new hardware, you keep the cost down and the hardware as common as possible. And like Waz did with the Apple II, you publish everything. You make it so you can open up a book and, oh, look, here's the hardware block diagram of everything I ever did. Document everything about how to install it. And you use common, low-cost hardware solutions that anyone can implement. Or as I could do a two-word substitute here, Raspberry Pi, which for $35 has taken the hobbyist world by storm because it can be used for darn near everything and is used for darn near everything in retro computing and always be available as a resource, always be available. I can tell you one computing community in particular that was emphatic 
about self-selecting developers was the Commodore Amiga community. If you didn't respond to bug requests or put out new versions of your software to fix bugs, you didn't have a lot of users afterward because they would users would basically say, don't use the software, he doesn't know what he's doing, he doesn't respond to customer service requests. And I found this bug, it's crashing, and he hasn't fixed it. Big emphasis on good customer service in that community. So you gotta put solutions in place to preserve security. So what this means is you gotta make sure the entire environment is appropriately secure. And if you know how, to, how the environment operates, you can assess and address risk. And the retrocomputing community will often, with emulators, describe what turning options will do, and more importantly, what not to do. And they emphasize keeping your personal information safe and off of devices you develop on. Sound familiar? So how does this relate to modern companies? I just talked about a bunch of things that have gone on over the past 30 years. Here's the first way I'm gonna bring this home for you. We are losing information more now than ever. So I'm gonna bring up the example of the iPhone. I have this wonderful iPhone here that up until iOS 11 was able to run 32-bit applications. It now only runs 64-bit applications. So think of all the 32-bit applications out there that no longer run because Apple iOS will not run them. And from what I understand, there is no emulator yet for Apple iOS that'll do 32 bits. We generate petabytes of information a year. And I'm sure that there's you could probably use exabyte at this point for the amount of information we generate. And barely any of it, despite the best efforts of companies like Google and Microsoft, is kept in a format we can use. We need to know what we have and we need to collaborate to know critical information about what we own. And almost every company out there has something very old and obsolete that is absolutely critical to their business. You're not alone. Everyone's got something 20 or 30 years old that if you shut off, would cause a serious disruption to your revenue. I don't care if you're Apple, Microsoft, IBM, or Purdue. You have something. And I will tell you, message from management here, your peers are most likely already collaborating and they haven't told you yet. And I will tell you, in terms of some of the managers I've dealt with over the past 20 years in IT, there, in some cases, there's a fear of repercussions because some managers emphasize not talking to outsiders. And realistically, if you're in that boat, you should be providing the blocking and tackling for, these, for people to preserve your critical assets and reduce risk. And don't be scared of potential impact from lawyers from reverse engineering how a 20-year-old device works. Or as I would like to explain to people, the Digital Millennium Copyright Act has section 1201 for a reason. You are allowed to reverse engineer something you own for the purposes of interoperability. So as long as you do that, tell the lawyers that, you should be okay. And nothing is so critical that you have to absolutely hide it. And the lessons learned from this, corporations and team members need to collaborate on shared vulnerabilities. Why? Everybody has them, emphasis on the period. We need to work together to address them. And it's about reducing risk, not corporate advantage. And what do we learn from WannaCry, Petya, and not Petya? What good is corporate advantage if you don't have a network? What good? It's no good. So what you want to do is you want to empower your key team members to collaborate with their peers and you want to, instead of trying to hide it or trying to hide the fact you've got some legacy system someplace, you facilitate it. I can name a major, major supplier to one of the big three automakers that actually facilitates it. 
who had, and this was 20 years ago. Why? Because most of the robots that assemble, auto, that assemble autos at the time were running VAX. Not OpenVMS, VAX. An operating system that, quite frankly, is older than I am and came on 8-inch disks. So because of that, you had a major auto company out there that was openly collaborating. They had staff doing that. Why? Because those 20-something-year-old robots at the time, they shut down. Uh, there's a lot of people that weren't going to be buying new cars. And you want to provide legal protection for them to do so, so that they can reduce risk and they can share this information without fear of repercussions. You want them joining information sharing and advisory centers such as the National Health ISAC, or in the case of Purdue, uh, the Research Education and Networking ISAC, REN ISAC. And you want to facilitate the shared forums in, and discussion areas to discuss how to resolve a lot of these issues. And give them time and resources to reverse engineer what you've got. If you have to change the acquisition rules, so be it. This is your business. eBay, flea markets, and Bitcoin are worth the risks if it involves keeping something safe and secure on your network. And I can tell you, in particular, the supplier to, the, to the, one of the big three auto manufacturers I mentioned had three staff members. Their job was to go on eBay into the vintage computer forum and buy all the deck hardware they can get their hands on. They would literally get lists from their IT department what to buy and they would, their job was to go on eBay and buy it. And also, don't do this in isolation. Have them gather this information and knowledge as part of the yearly risk assessments and include addressing the discovered risks as part of the risk management plan because you have to do so from the point of view of addressing the risk in real life use cases. And don't get caught up in these point solutions that say, hey, if you put this on your network, you'll preserve all your legacy devices. Why? Because you won't. It's not gonna do it. And you have, because the, reason, the real reason we have all of the legislation out there on information security, why we have HIPAA, why we have high tech is because, and why we have the rules in finance, and why the FFIEC has the rules they do, is because you have to know what you have, address what you have, and treat these resources like they have the 20 or 30 year life cycle they do. You have to mitigate risk. And you have to make sure your use cases address present and future conditions. Translation, if they decide that they're going to run a skeleton crew at your factory and they're going to monitor everything over the internet from Kalamazoo, Michigan, they need to be able to do so and do so securely. And you've got to address these risks with common solutions. So, level set for a lot of people here. Don't put this off because it doesn't meet someone's criteria for an <coughs> ideal solution. Oftentimes in IT, we get in this mindset of we have to get the perfect solution out there. It has to do everything. That doesn't work that way. You don't have something to secure your systems now, and you're at risk. And the reason why you're at risk is because you're sitting there in analysis paralysis. And you, like many other companies, you don't have a budget to put all new solutions in. And you shouldn't try to play keep up with the Joneses. So translation, many of the magazines you read out there, many of the publications, they make their money off of advertising revenue trying to get you to buy the latest and greatest products. You shouldn't fall into that trap. You want to keep those solutions common low cost and easily replaceable or fixable in case of failure. So in other words, you collaborate with others on building and maintaining them and keep them simple and out of the way. So if you don't think that something like this works, take a look at the Open Compute Project where you have some of the largest cloud services and application providers on the internet collaborating on server designs. 20 years ago, it would have been unthinkable. It also would have been a major dent in the revenue stream of a lot of former multi-billion dollar companies. And I want to emphasize that former multi-billion dollar companies.
The companies you deal with now for server technology and compute technology are not, most likely not going to be here in 20 years in the form you recognize. Outside of maybe IBM, and even then, half of what was IBM 20 years ago now belongs to Lenovo. Hewlett-Packard. 20 years ago, there were four other companies that were part of Hewlett-Packard. The Hewlett-Packard Enterprise, I believe the new one ZTE, there was also Agilent, and about two other companies that got spun off. So change is inevitable, and you have to make sure you're as open as possible and flexible as possible as simple as possible because 20 years from now, those companies are most likely not going to exist. So keep things as simple, keep them out of the way, and collaborate and document. So how does this actually benefit you? You actually address your risks based on your use cases, and you put solutions in place that actually are provably secure in a combination with network-based security, such as segmentation, allow you to manage multiple sites securely. So think of some benefits I listed here, such as central medical device or clinical engineering command centers. That's something you're hearing a lot about these days. Why? Because a couple of major hospitals pulled it off. Executives see that and go, ooh, I want that because it helps me increase my revenue. So you have to be prepared. And you think about centralized SCADA management for industrial devices. Think of the fact that there's a lot of factories out there, but the people that actually know how to maintain that equipment are few and far between. So you put the monitoring equipment where the people are at, and you literally run VPN connections from where the people are at to those machines. Keep, keep a tech or two on site to fix the stuff when, the, when it breaks, but again, you have people monitoring industrial equipment three states away. And when I did my research for this presentation, I went to a guy named Bill Hurd. He's a Hoosier. He should be mentioned as much as Wozniak is. Why? Because he designed the Commodore 128. He designed the computer that in the mid-80s had three processors in it that was doing work that, quite frankly, no one else in the market was doing. And he comes to me, when I talk to him about this over email, he goes to me, he goes, you know, Mitch, when we put this equipment out there, we were just figuring out how it worked. So now we have equipment designed when people were figuring out how networking worked. Heck, even when microprocessors worked, and you're putting it on the internet. So it's the equivalent of putting a jet engine in a Model T in, so, in many cases. So that's part of the reason we have to be so careful in assessing our risk. And we have to do so in a way that preserves the experience. Because there's no way in heck you're going to make something running a processor from 1979, like the 68000. You're not going to make it run a modern user interface. It's not running a networking stack. You've got to think differently and keep that user experience and keep any changes out of the way. You don't introduce new challenges if not needed. And more importantly, you make it so the person that's been operating that machine for the past 30 years is able to do so without major changes, or else you're gonna have some employee engagement issues. So, I wish I had the old Commodore demo thing I could have put up here, but I wanna do thanks to Bill Hurd, designer of the Commodore 128 and Plus 4, and fellow Hoosier. John Hagerheist, Ken Petit, and Stephen Adolph of Club 100, Evan Koblenz of the Vintage Computer Federation, Alex Rebellis from Blackstone Law Group and 2600 Magazine, and the crew from Pound C64 on IRC EFNet. So thank you all very much. We'll open up the floor to any questions. Do you want any questions? I do. So in the hospital system, Everyone wants to plug and get working. Um, 
what do you see technologically is going to relieve some of those problems that are just kind of like piling on right now, if anything? I think you have to have a good risk management plan. I'm very familiar with the man who spoke here. I actually talked to one of his friends on a regular basis from Eskenazi. So we actually collaborate with them pretty extensively. So just a little bit of level setting and backgrounds. Ultimately, you have to extend your risk management program to medical devices and you are going to have to put these devices off in their own little worlds. A lot of the medical devices out there, again, I can name devices from multi-billion dollar companies that have networking abilities because somebody figured out how to make a serial to Ethernet chips at work. You have to keep all of that in mind. You have to assess your risk properly. You also have to realize that there's no way I can expect a company to update these devices after five years. It's just not going to happen. Half the time they can't even get the build they can't even get the builds, building the software working correctly, which is why I mentioned it today with retro computing. Literally, if I, if I were to tell you I want to build a Palm OS 3.5 application today, I wouldn't know where to start. Because even getting the software needed to build it, running on a modern operating system would be a challenge. That's the problem you have with medical device security, is because a lot of this hardware and software, it has a stated 10-year life cycle. You're not patching it on Patch Tuesday. And why the heck should it be visible to anyone for any purpose other than what it needs? And according to the HIPAA security rule, it shouldn't be visible. Only be there for the purpose that it's needed for. So yes, we're going to see with medical device security that people are going to figure out the hard way. They're going to have to segment the stuff off from the rest of their network. And they're going to have to keep it isolated and know their data flows, which is ultimately the aim of the HIPAA security rule in the first place. And I applaud the work that man is doing at Eskenazi. It's, I'm just curious, with your passion in the retrocomputing area, obviously you're very passionate about it. Have you been able to apply that in your day job as a CISO of a major health system? I haven't been able to apply it at IU Health, but I will tell you in previous jobs, I've run into hardware and software that has been so old no one else has known how to operate it. Mm -hmm. I have been able to use serial ports and actually configure one, which is a lost art. I've actually had to do it for a fire alarm system at my old job because a fire alarm system was sending out serial ports, was sending out <coughs> signals at a, what's called an odd baud rate. And getting anyone to understand serial port as anything other than 9600 baud is a bit of a challenge these days. So yes, I've applied this repeatedly at my job, just not at IU Health. So any other questions from the audience there? Thank you very much. Thank you. Appreciate it.